Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. People can't tell you what your dream was if you don't tell them first. People can't say, oh yeah, you had a dream last night and here's what happened in your dream. Have you ever told a dream to someone and then they gave some suggestion as to what the dream might mean? Or maybe you've done that for someone else. It's quite possible that you've experienced something like that at some time. But have you ever had someone ask you to tell them the dream before you tell them the interpretation? Odds are you've never had that happen. But that's exactly what a king named Nebuchadnezzar expected his wiremen to be able to do for him and his dream. Daniel goes to the king and he says to the king, hold up king, I can tell you what your dream was and I can tell you the interpretation. And that in itself, ladies and gentlemen, is a miracle. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're continuing to work our way through Daniel chapter 2 and the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. As we saw last week, God gave Daniel a miracle by revealing to Daniel what the king had dreamed and what the dream meant. Last week, we looked at the first four parts of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and what they represented. Today, Pastor Clay is going to take us through the other parts of the dream, what they stand for, and what they mean for us in the future. God is a God of miracles. He still works miracles today. Prophecy is an exciting part of Scripture to look at, and we're glad you've joined us today as we continue our series, Daniel, Unshakable Faith, Unbreakable Promise. Now, here's Pastor Clay. Daniel chapter 2. Turn there, open your iPad or phone or uh, turn your page or however you're doing it. Daniel chapter 2. And I'm uh, going to give a little filler from last week and then, um, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. But we're beginning this morning, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. We're backing up and we covered some of this last week, but uh, we're backing up. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. You, O king, were looking... And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. And its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver. Its belly and its thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom 
as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Last week, we started with this idea. Let's just, let's just look at it. The miracle, dream retold. If you were here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But in those verses 31 through 36, Daniel, you know, we went into the background, we'll go into all that this, this week, you can go back and listen to the podcast, but Daniel goes to the king and he says to the king, hold up king, don't kill all these guys. I know your dream, I can tell you what your dream was, and I can tell you the interpretation to your dream. And that in itself, ladies and gentlemen, in case you don't know it, is a miracle. People can't tell you what your dream was if you don't tell them first. People can't say, oh yeah, you had a dream last night, and here's what happened in your dream. There were these unicorns, and they were jumping along, and I don't, whatever your dream was. People can't do that. Now, if somebody says, wow, I had this dream last night, and um, it was really weird, but uh, there were these unicorns, and they were jumping along. I don't know what's with the unicorns, but, and, and somebody could tell you, you could tell somebody their dream, and they say, oh, I know what that means. That means that you hate asparagus. And da, 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 you, know, you understand what I'm saying? So if, I, if, if they tell the dream, then somebody can, can come up with anything. And we talked about that, and the king said, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not taking a chance of that. So you're going to have to tell me the dream, and then you can tell me the interpretation. So Daniel does that. King, here's what happened. Now, let me just say this real quickly. One of the things I tried to emphasize last week when we were talking about that is just to remind all of us in this place today, in all of our circumstances, in all of our situations, in all of our messes that life can sometimes be, it's just to remind every single one of us that God is the God who can, that God is a God of miracles. He still works miracles today. Can I hear an amen? That's pretty good. That, that's who he is. That's what he does. And now, listen, this is not, you know, you, you guys know me, this is not uh, name it and claim it blab it and grab it kind of stuff. We don't tell God what the miracle will be. All right? We, we can leave that up to the God who has all knowledge to decide how and when and why things will work out. But I'm telling you, God is still in the miracle business. And we can, in our lives, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, this is the encouragement to you today, that we can, if you went back, you would see it, we can, like Daniel and his buddies, we can go to God with what I called last week a quiet confidence. Say, I'm not, I'm not going to stress out over this. I'm not going to fret over this. I'm not going to, oh, my goodness, what in the world is going to happen in this situation? As if God has neither the knowledge of what's going on or the power to do anything about it. When he absolutely does. So you and I, in the events and circumstances of our lives, just remember, <laughs> can anybody testify here? Are there times in your life when you feel like, man, God, I really need a miracle here. I need you to come through and do something with this. To be able to go to him and say, God, man, this situation stinks. I am not enjoying it at all. I don't get that whole joy and everything stuff. But God, I know that you're able and I will trust you in the midst of this circumstance. And God, here's, here's what I'm asking you to do. But I understand that you are infinite and I am finite. You have all knowledge and I have very little. So God, will you in your knowledge, will you answer this, this prayer exactly as you know is best? And God, I'll try my best not to get upset if you don't answer it the way I want because I know you know more than I know. Than I know. Man, that's just awesome because that's the miracle. All right, 
The second idea that we talked about last week, and take a little time here as well, but it's the meaning, future unfolds. And this is, this is what we camped on for a while last week, and we're going to come back to uh, this morning. But the meaning, future unfolds, as Daniel begins, he's told the dream, then he begins to interpret the dream. And he begins to say, all right, king, here's what your dream means. This area of, the, of Daniel chapter 2 and much of the rest of Daniel moves into what is referred to as predictive prophecy. Something that's called predictive prophecy. Where a, a prophet, a writer of scripture, a, a person uh, foretells an event that's going to happen. Everybody, that's, what, that's what, in one sense, the word prophecy means. To say, um, uh, next Tuesday at 7 a.m. in the morning... Uh, there's going to be a solar eclipse or something. Some, somebody might tell the future. That's what prophecy in that sense means. And last week we talked a lot about why that's important for us and why it is such a uh, tremendous encouragement to us when we see how Scripture gives all of these predicted, predictive prophecies, all these places where Scripture says, here's what's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And when those events come to pass exactly as they were predicted in Scripture to come to pass, Man, that's like, whoa, this stuff is good. I can, I can bank my life on this stuff. Listen, I have a short video that I want you to see. Uh, and I actually, after I watched it, I thought, I think I showed this a couple of years ago, maybe during the Revelation series, I'm not uh, sure. But uh, I want you to watch a video. There's three guys talking, and some of it, you know, you're kind of in the midst of it, and you may wonder exactly all that's going on. But they're basically talking about predictive prophecy and why that is such a should be such an encouragement to us. Watch this. Predictive prophecy. The Bible is replete with predictive prophecy. And some might say, well, so what? Well, the so what is this, that it stands alone as a religious book that is replete with predictive prophecy. The Quran has some supposed prophecies like Muhammad is going to return to Mecca, a self-fulfilling prophecy that he fulfilled in his own lifetime. But that's very different from the kinds of prophecies you find in Scripture. What, what, what about Nostradamus, though? Not, <laughs> well, got to throw that if, one if you look at Nostradamus, as any critical person looking at that realizes that there are vague generalities that fit a number of circumstances. Very different from the kinds of prophecies you find in Scripture. First of all, you have, since Jesus Christ is the living word of the New Testament, the culminating theme of the Old Testament, you find that there are a lot of prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are various numbers that people assign to the number of Messianic prophecies. Some of them are duplicated in various books of the Old Testament and so forth. But let's simply support the fact that you can find 30, 40, 50, even 100 very significant prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, it is prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem, that Jesus Christ would be crucified with criminals, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Which is kind of interesting in itself, because here you have a description of crucifixion in the Old Testament a thousand years before Jesus Christ is crucified. And actually, when this prediction is made by David in the 22nd Psalm, this is 400 years before Crucifixion is even invented by the Persians and later popularized by the Romans. 
So you have here predictive prophecy that validates the details. And, and the kind, I mean, born of a virgin. How are you going to pull that off? Uh, so you have. So these, he couldn't. Jesus couldn't have maneuvered his life to intentionally fulfill these prophecies. Make your and because I mean it says in Zechariah nine nine it says that the the Messiah is going to come in on a donkey into Jerusalem. So couldn't Jesus have said, Hey guys, I I, I want to yeah I need a donkey. I want to fool people and think I'm the Messiah because I'm really anxious to be tortured to death here. So go get me a, a donkey so I can do that. Couldn't he have maneuvered to fulfill a lot of this? There are some things that Jesus Christ might have maneuvered, but when you look at the cumulative case, you can't. I mean, how are you going to make yourself a descendant of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, born in Bethlehem, crucified with criminals. you got soldiers gambling for your clothing. Your hands and your feet are going to be peered, pierced. You're going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, and on and on it goes. And Daniel I mean, prophecy is about the timing. Ah, I mean, this is incredible. You look at Daniel. That's a great example. Daniel actually prophesies the exact time that Jesus Christ would live. In fact, the prophecies in Daniel make it very clear that Jesus Christ would live prior to the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So, uh, yeah, I mean, not only that, but Daniel prophesied the progression of kingdoms from the Babylonian Empire to the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks and the Romans and so forth. And, 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 and with such accuracy and precision that secular skeptics have said no way could this have been written in the 6th century. It had to be written in the 2nd century, which really doesn't help much because you don't have Rome coming into prominence you know, until after that. How do you that. know it wasn't written? later. How, how do you respond to that challenge? Well, this is a challenge that people make, but they have to provide some details and documentation that this was redaction, that this was editing or insertion that was done after the fact, and all the evidence points in exactly the opposite direction. For example, uh, we're talking about Daniel. Well, it is predicted in Isaiah that Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, was going to come into prominence and he would be a world leader who would have all kinds of responsibilities that are communicated in scripture his name is given 150 years before he even comes to prominence like i said i know it's a lot to take in but it covers a lot of those things also that we talked about last week and it's just this astounding accuracy of scripture and the evidence that there is to support that which then supports the belief system that i and and many of you perhaps hold to that God's word is true and that, that God's plans and purposes are unfolding. The future unfolds. That's what we see throughout that text. It's coming to pass. According to uh, BibleEvidences.com, I wanted to read this, this quote that I pulled from there. It says, the Old Testament contains, uh, by their count, 333 prophecies regarding the Messiah. Uh, if you don't know it, Messiah uh, simply means the anointed one, the Savior, the, the Christ. The Greek word is the Christ, the one who would come. They say the Old Testament contains 333 prophecies regarding the Messiah, most of which were fulfilled by the first coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, most of the prophecies have to do with his first coming. Even the most liberal critics acknowledge that these prophecies were written at least 400 years before Christ. Many of them far before that, but at least 400 years. Watch this. Mathematicians have easily shown that the odds of all of these prophecies being fulfilled by chance in one man is greater than the number of atoms in the universe many times over. Now, I don't really know how many atoms are in the universe, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot. Predictive prophecy, the, the Bible's ability to foretell what will take place in the future. 
And so, as we saw last week, Daniel, as he begins to interpret the dream, lays out the first four parts of Nebuchadnezzar's image. This image that he had of this giant statue. And we covered these last week, and they're on your outline. But each of these, this head of gold representing the Babylonian Empire, uh, the, the chest and arms of silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the midsection uh, of, uh, of bronze representing the Greek, Greek Empire, and then the legs of iron representing the Roman Empire. Daniel lays this out, and as I said last week, there's pretty much universal acceptance that, that, that Daniel's interpretation was referring to these four kingdoms that would come, that would rule. One already existed when Daniel gave the prophecy because Nebuchadnezzar was on his throne, the Babylonian Empire was in place, and then Daniel said, here's the kingdoms that will come to pass after this. These four kingdoms had worldwide domination. In other words, for that part of the world, what was known of the world, they controlled that, the world at that time. And Daniel, Daniel gives very specifics, some, some great specifics about those kingdoms and what they would look like. And as I said last week, um, he lays that out uh, pretty clearly. And it's pretty much, there's some disagreement, but it's pretty much universally accepted that those are the kingdoms that Daniel is referring to. Babylonian, Medo-Persian, uh, Grecian, and Roman Empire. I gave some, some supporting evidence of that last week, by the way. One of the things I did not say, that I probably need to, is that much of the uh, evidence also is included in further on in the book of Daniel, particularly in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. So you may want to make a note connecting chapter 2 and chapter 7 because chapter 2 and chapter 7 are intricately linked and you can't really have a firm understanding of either one of those chapters unless you have uh, the, the two of them together. And so this is going to come up a few times today and we're going to see it when we get to chapter 7 how all of Daniel's interpretation of the dream becomes clearer and clearer and we can see greater and greater evidence that Daniel really was correct about these empires that he's list. So, the first four kingdoms, no problem. Pretty much everybody agrees about that. It is the fifth part of Nebuchadnezzar's image, though. The feet of iron and clay. It is that fifth part that there is a lack, and to some degree, of continuity or agreement as to what the fifth part, the feet of iron and clay, what that represents. And probably the primary reason that there is disagreement over what the feet of iron and clay represent, probably the reason that there is uh, disagreement over that is because it, nobody is, or many people are unsure of when in the timeline of human history, the feet of iron and clay and the empire that it represents, when does that take place? There's, there's debate about that. Now, about this time, some of you are thinking, and I care about this because... Listen, the reason that we should care about w- w- what the feet of clay and iron represents and when the feet in, of iron and clay takes place, the reason you and I should care about that is because if the empire represented by the feet of iron and clay... Y'all with me? Say, I'm awake. Okay. If the empire represented by the feet of iron and clay has already taken place in human history, like those first four, right? They've already taken place from from our perspective. Y'all do know we're living in 21st century, right? Right? They've already taken place a long time ago. If the fifth 
empire has already taken place, then it's, it's probably not that significant for my future, mine or your future, right? But if the fifth part of the statue has not yet taken place, then it may have significant implications for yours and my future. And most people I know want to know about their future. So it does matter. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you that there are those that want to place the fifth empire, represented by the feet of clay and iron, they want to place it closer in the timeline of history to the Roman Empire. Um, There are those uh, who want to place the fifth empire somewhere prior to the birth of Jesus Christ or possibly uh, at the time of the fall of of Rome, which took place about the 5th century A.D. In other words, there are those who want to place the fifth empire also back into history in an event that has already transpired, has already happened. Now, that is not the view that I happen to hold to, and I'll explain why in just a minute, but that view does have a couple of arguments worth looking at. Don't you want to hear them? First, um, one of the arguments is, well, the, the, if, the, if the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire, and the feet are at least partly made out of iron, there must be some connection with the feet to the legs. There must be some connection between the empire of feet of clay and iron and the Roman Empire represented by the iron legs. Boy, I really made that confusing, didn't I? But y'all, y'all are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? If the, feet of, if the legs of iron are Roman Empire, then there's got to be some connection with those feet because they've got some iron in them too. I think that's a valid point. I, I, that makes sense. Secondly, supporting that argument, each one of the... Bring, bring me the uh, image back up, if you will, Tyler, please. Each one of those uh, empires that you see there, and, and I don't know if you can read the dates or not, but each one of those empires that have already transpired succeed at one another. They came in rapid succession. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the Babylonian Empire, represented by the, say it with me, head of gold, was immediately followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the chest and arms of silver. And it was immediately followed by the Greek Empire, represented by the midsection of bronze. And it was immediately followed you understand? Time, timeline, it just one came right after the other. All the way down to the Roman Empire. So, here's the argument. So, if those came in successive orders, why wouldn't the fifth empire, represented by clay and iron, why wouldn't it follow right after those others? Now, on the surface, those are some pretty good arguments. There is, however, one, in my opinion, huge, one glaring problem with, with the view that the fifth empire has already happened in the past. There's one glaring problem with that from my estimation. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can get to it. Um, in order to, to get to it, I, I need to explain the problem to you. In order to explain the problem to you, I need to go back, or I need to go ahead and go to the last element of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Okay? The stone cut out without hand. Verse 34, Daniel is talking to Daniel, or is talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He's explaining his dream to him. And in verse 34, it says this. It says, 
you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. I said last week, I said, I've already said again this week, that it's pretty much universally accepted that the first four kingdoms, that's who they represent. Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, Roman. Everybody pretty much agrees on that. It's also universally accepted that the, fi- the, the final element, the stone cut out without hands, represents Jesus Christ or the kingdom of Christ. Pretty much everybody, no matter where you fall on the scale of your understanding of Scripture, pretty much everybody agrees that the stone cut out without hands represents Jesus Christ or the kingdom of Christ. Let me read it to you again, verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. I I don't think it takes a, a Bible scholar or even the son of a Bible scholar to recognize that Stone cut out without hands symbolizes this is not a man-made thing. That stone cut out without hands symbolizes that this, this is not something man could manipulate. It's not something man could do or man could put together. In other words, this is a God thing. This is a God thing. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and in, Nebuch- and in Daniel's interpretation of that dream, Daniel says that there is this stone that is cut out without hands. It's a God thing. Again, symbolizing Jesus Christ or the kingdom of Christ. And, and it will come and it will strike the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it will crush it. So, why don't I believe that the fifth kingdom represented by the feet of iron and clay, why don't I believe that it's already happened historically? Very simply because the first time Jesus Christ came, he didn't destroy the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, by the time Christ was born and died, the Roman Empire hadn't even reached its zenith, its height of power. It went on for another 400 years after Christ had gone back to heaven. And in a very real sense, the the world system that was in place then is still in existence today. And I think, from Daniel's interpretation of the dream, it's pretty clear that when the stone cut without hands shows up, That will be the end of human domination. That will be the end of human empires and human governments. That will be the end of all of that. And last time I checked, we still have all of that in place. Listen, the first time Christ came, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave. But the Roman Empire went on. The the wickedness of the world went on and still goes on to this very day. So still, here we are, I promise I'm going to get there, still we come back to this idea, okay, then what, who, what is the feet of iron and clay, what does it represent? What is it? I'm not going to give you a lot of arguments for this today because, number one, we don't really have the time. Number two, we're going to look at a lot of those arguments when we get to chapter 7. However, I will say this first. That what I mentioned earlier, uh, there does seem to be a connection between the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, and the feet of clay and iron. In other words, there does seem to be, the idea does seem to be put forth that that there is some relationship. That would indicate that at some point there will be some type of 
of uh, restoration or, or resurrection or, or regeneration, whatever you want to call it, of the ancient Roman Empire, that it's going to come back into existence. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be called the Roman Empire. I don't, know. I don't really know what it's going to be called. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be called the Roman Empire. But it probably means that there will be some type of amalgamation or confederation of countries that, that will all come under this one thing. That it will be multiple uh, countries that will come under this, this thing. Some type of, like the Roman Empire was. It probably means that there's some connection to the European continent geographically, that somehow the European continent ties into this since that was the, the origin and, the, uh, and the, the epicenter, if you will, of the Roman Empire. It, it expanded well beyond that, but, but there in Rome, there in Italy, that it started there, and so there's probably some connection uh, to the European continent. And this ancient Ro- Roman Empire that will be resurrected almost certainly means that it will have, and again, we'll see this in chapter 7, that it will have some type of emperor who will rule over the people, who will set himself up as deity, as a god, and who will demand that his subjects, that the people of the world, worship him, just as the ancient Roman emperors did, who claimed deity and insisted that they be worshipped by the subjects of Rome. So... That being said, where does that leave us? It is, it is my conviction, not mine only, by the way, many people hold to this conviction, that the feet of iron and clay represents the kingdom, the empire of the Antichrist, who will rise up just prior to the return of Christ. Because, to go back to the argument, Daniel can't be talking. That's the problem that I mentioned earlier. Daniel can't be talking about an event that has happened in the past. Because there's still human rule going on in the earth. And the text clearly indicates that when this stone cut out without hands comes, it will put an end to human rule once and for all. So I believe that the feet of iron and clay represents a kingdom that will be led by someone known as the Antichrist, who will put together a one-world government. Look at, uh, I think it's verse uh, 43. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. There's this indication that that it will be a kingdom, that it will be a collection of nations, but that they won't all get along, and that some will be stronger than others. By the way, I know I'm broken record, but we'll see it in chapter 7, but the, just so you can fill in a, a blank if you've got one on there, the ten toes represented in the feet of iron and clay, the ten toes almost certainly represent ten countries or ten nations or ten regions even of the world that this Antichrist kingdom will encompass. But not all the countries will get along. It was interesting, you know, and, and listen, I'm not, I'm not down, I'm not saying that these organizations are evil, but students of prophecy, people that look into this kind of stuff, are constantly pointing at organizations like um, the United Nations or the European Union as, as a perfect platform 
for a dynamic leader to rise up and, and take control of the world. I'm not saying those organizations are evil, okay? Uh, I'm just saying that they or something like them would be a perfect scenario for this dynamic leader who somehow pulls all of these nations together, I believe, through his persuasive speech and through his satanically influenced power, he will pull these nations together and form one world government. He'll manage to hold it together, uh, at least for a time. Because, I want to point out to you, that the in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the image, the empire that I believe is the Antichrist empire is represented by feet of iron and In other words, it may appear strong. That empire may appear that it will have strength. But that when that stone cut out without hands appears. I mean, I'm just telling you, in the way it reads, it it don't read like it's much of a fight. You know what I'm saying? When the stone cut out without hands appears, he will crush that kingdom. And all previous kingdoms that all of this was built on will come crumbling down and will be nothing but as the text says, chaff, blown away by the wind. And all of the, all of the, the power and the prestige and the, and the authority that mankind has thought that he has built up will all be crushed under the weight of the authority of God Almighty when he establishes his kingdom. A kingdom that the text is very clear about and numerous other texts is a forever kingdom. That will have no end. This place where pain and suffering and heartache and disease and sin and death will be no more. A glorious kingdom. So, history unfolds. And I believe it will unfold exactly as Daniel has said that it will unfold. Because everything else Daniel said and the other prophets said has unfolded exactly as he said that it would. So let me give you one other idea uh, this morning. Uh, let, me, let me get to the message. God controls. Okay? The miracle is that this dream could be retold in the first place. The meaning is that the future unfolds and then connected to that is the last one. The message. God controls, ladies and gentlemen. God controls. Let me, let me read verse uh, latter part of verse 45 through 49. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Let me read that again. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Remember, this is the most powerful guy on earth. He gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. Chapter 2 closes. This is the message. This is the unbreakable promise that really starts all the way back in the book of Genesis and runs throughout the pages of God's word. And that promise is that God is in control of his creation and that there is a day coming when the enemy will be kicked out once and for all. Amen! 
Y'all need a little help this morning. The enemy will be kicked out once and for all. And can I say it again? No more sin, no more death, no more disease, no more suffering, no more pain, no more heartache, no more tears, no more hurt. Yeah, come on. Y'all got it? There is that day coming. That is the unbreakable promise. And it reminds us that God is in control, ladies and gentlemen. God is in control. Now, let me say this. That does not mean that man does not have free will. He does. That does not mean that God is responsible for men's sinful choices. He's not. But what it does mean is that God is sovereign over his creation and that he sees the future just as easily as he sees the past. And that while men may make sinful choices and men and women may choose to reject him and go their own path, God has already foreordained. Don't get nervous when I start using that word. God has already foreordained that his kingdom will be established on this earth. His kingdom. Not man's, not Satan's, not anybody else's. His kingdom. His earthly kingdom will be established forever. Now, I am not a predictor of dates, okay? I'm not. But I am both a student of history and of prophecy. And you can't look around at the world in which we live in today and not begin to see how the return of Jesus Christ cannot be far off. Cannot be far from a literal experience in this world. When you... When you add to that the advancements that, that we have in, in technology and, and communication and travel, just in the last hundred years, and I know, especially those of you that are, that are younger than me, you don't, I mean, it's, this is all you know. A new phone coming out every 30 minutes is all you know. Uh, a, your six-month-old computer being obsolete is all you know. But I'm telling you, the world wasn't like that, ladies and gentlemen. For thousands of years, the world didn't change hardly at all. And it is only within the last hundred years that we have seen an unbelievable, off-the-chart acceleration in technology, communication, and travel. Really, you could almost narrow it down to the last 50 years. And if we hang around here long enough, we could say just the last 50 minutes. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the world is becoming a very small place and that the situation is perfect, once again, for one leader to rise up and take control of the world. And he will. But his kingdom will be crushed under the authority of the stone cut out without hands. And I say, hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, we hope today that you've been encouraged, even as you've been reminded, that God truly is in control. Men may plot and scheme. Men make sinful, ungodly decisions. But God is still guiding His creation to its ultimate conclusion, a conclusion that ends with Jesus Christ establishing an earthly kingdom that puts an end to all man-made kingdoms. When will it be? None of us knows for sure, but as Pastor Clay reminded us today, there certainly is much going on in the world that indicates that the end may not be far off. The Antichrist will have his day on this earth, but it will be short-lived because the true Christ is going to crush his kingdom and establish his righteous kingdom that will last forever. Truly, 
we serve a great and awesome God. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.